Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. It's Monday. Uh, let's start out the uh, week with Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls for the hour. There's so much going on. I'm sure that, uh, that uh, Congressman Khanna has a lot on his mind. I do on mine. And if you'd like to uh, present him with your questions about what's going on, our telephone number, 202-808-9925. Uh, Congressman Khanna represents the 17th District of California. He is the, uh, he is the uh, I believe you're the... Uh, What's, what's your title with the, uh, the Congressional Progressive Caucus? It's vice chair? Uh, vice chair. Vice chair. Vice chair. Thank you very much. Uh, the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And uh, you can tweet him at Rep. Ro, R-O, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A, and his website, Khanna.House.gov. Congressman, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So, uh, <laughs> boy, there's a lot going on. <laughs> I understand, uh, A, you've got a jobs bill for all coming up in Congress. B, the Medicare for All Caucus. This this is a big deal. I, I, I'm seeing uh, stuff that indicates that the number one issue across America, regardless of party, is uh, health care and, and concerns about the expense of health care. And uh, that's a big deal. And I'm curious your thoughts on the president's tweets this morning. Absolutely. Well, look, uh, on the Medicare for All, uh, this is the most uh, momentum we've had in Congress uh, on this issue uh, for uh, ever, really. We've had 70 members 
nearly sign up for Medicare for All. Uh, and the idea is that uh, uh, this is, a, as you know, pro-jobs, and uh, it's going to save costs. I mean, one of the things that infuriates me, I was doing an interview on, on Fox News this weekend, and they said, well, do you realize Medicare for All is going to cost $32 trillion? And I said, well, that number doesn't mean anything unless you compare it to our current system, which costs $49 trillion. So actually you would save $17 trillion, which makes sense because you would get rid of the private insurance uh, costs. You, you would get rid of uh, the costs that pharmaceuticals are charging. You would get rid of the hospital fees. Uh, and, of course, this is uh, everyone in the caucus believes you should have health care from the day you're born. You shouldn't have it contingent of filling out forms or fighting with a uh, a bureaucrat. So I am very optimistic. Uh, Pramila and uh, Mark Pocan have done a terrific job starting the caucus. We had a great uh, press conference with a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, and I really am hoping that this eventually becomes part of the standard Democratic platform, not just the uh, progressive platform. Cool. And uh, your, inter your Jobs for All bill, tell me about Jobs that. Jobs for All is a, a, a very simple uh, point, uh, which is that uh, we need to help people in places of large unemployment uh, get a job. Uh, this calls for a subsidy of a person's wage, uh, as well as a subsidy for them to get uh, a credential. Uh, you have a program like this in Germany. Uh, basically, the government helps pay the wage for an individual to get a job um, as a teacher in the government uh, for a small business, uh, and it gets them uh, an opportunity to, to work with a good wage. One of the things that when you talk about the 3.8% unemployment rate or the stock market growth, uh, that just gets lost in the discussion is most people have not had uh, uh, in wages and their costs are going up and people don't have uh, good jobs. And this program uh, makes sure that uh, people will have the opportunity for a good job. Uh, and it also is something that uh, will make sure we deal with the geographic uh, inequality and geographic divide. There's certain places that still have 8, 9, 10% uh, unemployment. Great. And finally, uh, just uh, and then we'll pick up your calls uh, calls for you if that's all right with you, is uh, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on on uh, Donald Trump's tweets this morning in all caps threatening the, right. the, the president of uh, Iran. It seems like, I mean, Rouhani is the reformer. Uh, and it seems like by, by going all hard right on him, he's, uh, what Trump is doing is emboldening on the one hand, the, the, the hard right forces in Iran, which is not broadly a good thing for us, and, and also the diminishing the power of the moderates who are, who are trying to bring Iran into the 21st century. Well, putting aside the, the juvenile nature and the dangerous of threatening war on Twitter, which has said that this administration is uh, marching us towards confrontation with Iran. And I've been more concerned about uh, getting into a war uh, with Iran than even the situation in North Korea. I mean, they uh, came in, they undermined uh, the Iran deal. Uh, they have strengthened an alliance with Saudi Arabia. Uh, they have uh, admitted that they are sending troops into or sending a part of the uh, troops mission even in Syria. The special operation forces are to contain uh, Iran. Tillerson had said that. Uh, so you have Pompeo and uh, Bolton, and Bolton's case, someone who's been itching for uh, a confrontation with Iran uh, for the past 20 years, uh, and they're they're setting this up uh, to uh, draw us into another war, which is why I have said, and Barbara Lee and others, that the Democrats right now uh, need to be very, very clear that we need to be unified, and every Democrat should be uh, absolutely clear that we will not support uh, any invasion or hostilities or strike uh, into Iran so that we're not divided the way the Democratic Party was divided when they rushed us into war uh, in Iraq. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's pick up some phone calls here. David in Columbus, Ohio. David, uh, thanks, your, uh, thanks for listening. You're on the air with Congressman Ro Khanna. Hi, Congressman. Um, since California leads the nation, I think uh, either single-payer health care or um, free college education would be a good demonstration project for California. And I, that was going to happen, but then it, it got sidetracked somehow. Can you explain what happened? Well, I, I agree with you that it would be uh, a, a good program nationally, and certainly in California. Pat Brown, our, our governor, uh, built the state uh, based on a funding of uh, the UC, University of California system, and uh, the California state system uh, to provide uh, affordable education. And now 
uh, that's no longer the case. I mean, the UCs cost uh, twenty, thirty thousand a year, and the, even California State Universities cost about uh, ten thousand dollars a year. Uh, the funding is the issue in California. Uh, we right now are unfortunately in an initiative to repeal the gas tax, uh, which would deprive the state. I uh, oppose that, but it's uh, uh, an issue that uh, would starve uh, us from revenue. Uh, people have been unwilling to raise uh, the taxes on, on uh, the top earners, and they've been unwilling to revise Prop 13 that restricts uh, any taxation on uh, property, including commercial property, uh, that we would need for uh, as a source of revenue to do things like uh, free public college. So uh, it's an issue of values in California legis- the California legislature being willing to raise the revenue. Yeah. Congressman, just FYI, uh, I'm guessing you're talking to us on a cell phone because every other sentence or so we miss two or three words that are dropping out. I don't know I'm if sure there's... That I'm on a landline. Uh, oh, you are? Let me... Yeah, I am. But huh. uh, let me move to a different... Uh, different room. Maybe it's a VoIP landline or something like that. I, whatever it is. Anyway, I just thought I'd give you a heads up if, well, if, I you, appreciate can, that. if you can improve yeah. the signal. Okay, Mark in Albany, New York. Uh, let's stay on Sirius XM. You're on the air with Congressman Ro Khanna. Congressman Ro Khanna, Tom, how are you this morning? My, my question is very simple. Um, a lot of the smoke screen about what, um, uh, what the president is doing uh, takes away from other issues, too, that the, the Republicans are trying to do. I, I just heard a recent report that's going to try to do some more uh, gutting of Medicare and Medicaid. Have you heard anything about, uh, you know, plans by the Republican right to uh, really go after uh, Medicare and Medicaid before uh, this next election? I don't think they're – I do know they want to go after Medicare and Medicaid. I don't think they're going to do it before the election. What I do think they're going to do uh, is further tax cuts. I think in the fall they're going to – uh, try to make this uh, awful tax package they passed uh, permanent. Uh, and they're talking about a, a further reduction uh, in the capital gains uh, tax rate. Uh, and we're, you know, we have to be prepared to, 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 to fight them uh, on that uh, issue. What they're, you know, they accuse us all, always of wealth redistribution, uh, but what their tax plan is doing is taking money from hardworking individuals and really redistributing it by. Uh, having hedge fund owners and private equity owners uh, pay a reduced tax rate by reducing uh, capital gains further and uh, not charging ordinary income. So uh, that's really been their agenda. Yeah, and it's remarkable. Congressman Rokana taking your calls for the hour, 202-808-9925. We'll be back with more of your calls for Congressman Connor right after this. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's a brand new week, and Congressman Ro Khanna is answering your questions on the air. Stick around. Welcome back. Congressman Ro Khanna is on the line taking your calls for the hour. Congressman, you're still with us? I am. Okay. Alan in Northwest Indiana, you are on the air with Congressman Khanna. Uh, Congressman, my name is Alan. Uh, we have a high rate of unemployment, as you said, in our inner cities with primarily young men, for decades. What have you done to instill training programs, and what will you propose to instill training programs in the future? Thank you. I'll hang up and listen to your answer. Well, I, uh, first of all, completely agree with you. We have uh, very, very high unemployment uh, in uh, some of the inner cities. We also have, by the way, very, very high employ- uh, unemployment in rural areas. Some of the t- highest unemployment areas are in uh, states that uh, Trump carried. Uh, I've proposed uh, two, two things. Now, Congress needs to pass it, but I have said that we need to provide uh, subsidized employment with benefits to people to get them a start, to get them into the job market. They can be doing productive work. They could be doing things to help clean up our environment. Uh, for example, I read this uh, recent article this weekend about uh, people who were going and planting sea algae in the ocean to help reduce carbon. Uh, you can be doing a tremendous amount of public good and jobs in that area that we need. Uh, they could be doing things in the private sector, the child care or in technology or elder care. But we, got, we have to give them a start by having some subsidy on their wages and uh, support services to get them uh, into the uh, job market. And uh, uh, Stephanie Kelton has written about this, Derek Hamilton. Uh, it's a matter of the uh, political will that we need a president and a majority in Congress to pass it. Tim in Hendersonville, North Carolina. You're on the air with Congressman Ricana. And you need to turn your TV down. Hello. Hey, Tim. You're on the air. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, there's 
I enjoy your show very much. I listen to it as often as possible. I think there's two things I'd like to mention. One, I think the Democrats, who have been uh, brutally uh, dismantled in the marketing departments by being labeled as uh, debt or as uh, uh, redistributing wealth, they should, they should brand themselves and say, no, 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 we're going to redistribute the debt. And if you look at the way debt is created and who holds on to the notes and the, the, who holds on to the debt in, in this country, I think that that's a real important thing. So, you know, look, we're not, we're not going to redistribute the wealth. We're going to redistribute the debt and, and, and make it so that the disparate have a better chance to, uh, to take part in, in not owning the debt. Okay. Your thoughts, Congressman? Well, I think you're, you're, you're right that a lot of the debt is owned by uh, hardworking folks. But I think what, what this wealth redistribution is the biggest farce of a Republican description of Democrats. Because the people who are redistributing the wealth are Republicans and their tax policy. They're explicitly taking money uh, from hardworking Americans who are having to pay ordinary income tax and redistributing it uh, to stockholders and investors who are getting huge tax breaks for either outsourcing uh, or for uh, having lower capital gains or carried interest rates. The entire tax plan is redistributing wealth from hardworking Americans to the investor class. I think what the Democrats need to say is we are restoring the basic belief in this country that you ought to be make uh, what you deserve and that we're going to be giving people a raise because the money has been sucked up out of the working class and middle class to the investor class. Ivan in Chicago, listening to WCPT. Ivan, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hey, good morning, Congressman. Yes, good morning. Sorry about the donut hole. Can you explain briefly how it works and what could be done to fill it other than Medicare for all, which, of course, would be a beautiful thing? Well, the donut hole, as I understand it, is that uh, there is a uh, amount uh, where you're covered uh, for prescription drugs and others. Then there is a uh, amount after you cross a certain threshold where you're not covered, and then again you become covered if you have something catastrophic. But uh, what this means is if you have a uh, chronic illness or you uh, really need uh, medicine uh, for uh, cholesterol or for diabetes or for asthma, uh, then many people have to end up paying a lot uh, out of pocket. Uh, I, obviously there are things we can do to, to fix it. Congress just needs to uh, fund uh, more the uh, the coverage of prescription drugs and allow Medicare to negotiate prescription drugs so that they would bring the cost down. But I think ultimately a Medicare for all is the type of comprehensive solution uh, that, that, that this country needs. Tyrone in Harlem, New York, here on the air with Congressman Connor. Uh, how are you doing, Tom? How are you doing, Congressman? Good. I was, Good. One, I was wondering um, what could be done to stop this uh, archaic that was law that I feel is racially motivated that stay in your ground, uh, stay in your ground law. You know, even back in the Wild West, if you shot an unarmed man, it was against the law. You were, you have to go to jail for it. We have gone back so far back that we, that the law even defines what was going on in the lawless Wild Wild West. If this law spreads, all it's going to do is bring our country back to the time when you could just indiscriminately kill someone and say you were afraid, and that was that's justification. Congressman? Well, I, I, I definitely think we need to relook re at some of these uh, laws that have uh, led to uh, too much of uh, tolerance uh, for killing, and that it needs to be a very, very high standard. I mean, I would have to look state by state, but I, uh, I, I don't think that uh, we ought to... Uh, give people allowance to kill uh, unless there's a, just absolutely extraordinary circumstances. And in many of these laws, they probably are too permissive, just like our laws with police uh, uh, using lethal force need to be uh, stricter. In my state, in California, there's a bill uh, that may uh, redefine the standard and, and really say that it can only be used if absolutely necessary. Uh, so I, I do think all of our laws, whether they're civilians or police, uh, the use of lethal force should be uh, heavily restricted. What's the uh, bill in California? I, I don't remember the number, but the, uh, they're relooking at the standard uh, mm -hmm. for what the uh, use of force is, and uh, they would make it a uh, much stricter uh, standard for the use of force. And so it's going right now uh, through the California uh, Assembly. The ACLU is uh, behind it, and I, I think it would be... Uh, it would restrict, basically, police from uh, a deadly force. Uh, the standard uh, would be 
uh, one that would be much, much harder, I would say, where it's necessary to prevent uh, serious bodily injury. Uh, and it's not just uh, when there's reasonable cause, but would specifically say it's a necessity for uh, preventing uh, bodily injury or death. Fascinating stuff. Uh, speaking of California, Rob in San Diego, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Uh Congressman, and Tom, you know, one of the big benefits of Medicare for All that nobody talks about is what a huge relief of a burden it would be for employers not to have to have, not to be shopping for insurance, I mean, it, and, and uh, uh, administering open enrollments, etc. Not only that, the lower cost of Medicare for All will help make every employer more competitive around the, around the world. Thank you for making that point. You're, you're absolutely correct, and I'll tell you, representing Silicon Valley, I hear this all the time from companies and startups. Uh, there are two points to it. The stagnation of wages of employees is directly tied to the increase in health care costs. If uh, you had taken the same money that companies right now are having to pay in uh, health care premiums, and if they had put that money instead to uh, employees, you wouldn't have the stagnation of wages that we've had in, in, in the middle class. Uh, and secondly, to your point, uh, one of the biggest things that restricts people from moving from job to job or changing jobs uh, is that their health care is tied to uh, their employment. And uh, uh, if we change that, it would make things much more competitive. It would allow employees much more flexibility to leave, which would actually increase uh, wages. So I really appreciate how you're framing this, because I think the progressives, we should not uh, hesitate to point out the competitive and pro-growth advantages of Medicare for All. Jordan in Durham, North Carolina. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hey, Tom. How you doing? Good. Hey, Congressman. How you doing? Good. Um, Congressman, I have one question. Uh, I'm a, I'm a Af young African-American young man, and uh, I've been struggling with Social Security, and I just want your comments about that and jobs. What do you mean by I've been struggling with, Jordan? Do you mean... Like, like I've been struggling to get in college and, you know... I, 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 you know, I, I appreciate that, and uh, I would say two things. One, uh, obviously there is still uh, systematic uh, racism and challenges, uh, particularly, I mean, I'm Indian American, but I think when you're African American, there's no community that has faced more the brunt of, uh, of racism and discrimination in this country. And so uh, being clear-eyed that th those challenges still exist. But I thought uh, actually President uh, Barack Obama was uh, extraordinarily eloquent when he would go and speak to young African Americans, and he would say, uh, "These are the challenges. No, don't uh, uh, don't think that those they don't, they don't exist. Uh, but you still have agency. You still can uh, dream. You still can overcome those, uh, and and be confident to to try to do your part because generations before have done theirs. And so and I, I'm serving in the Congress with." Uh, John Lewis, who was beaten literally on the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, so that uh, uh, African Americans could vote. So uh, I think uh, just keep working to, to do your part and to make this uh, a more just society. We'll be back with more of your calls for C Congressman Ro Khanna right after this. Welcome back. Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls for the hour. Janelle in Port St. Port St. Lucie, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi, Tom. Hi, Congressman. I'm calling because I want to know if anything's being done about medical marijuana. I am currently on it. I had a serious auto accident that caused me severe nerve damage. And I've been on all kinds of medications and different levels of opiates as far as I was concerned. Last November, I started medical marijuana. In November, I was able to come off the opiates 100%. Now, the problem is, is that doctor that I go to is a licensed MD, but I cannot put her office visit through Medicare or Medicaid, Medicare or my insurance company. Also, medical marijuana is extremely expensive, and that's another charge that I cannot put through Medicare or through my insurance company for coverage. And I was wondering what's being done about helping people out like me. Great question. I really appreciate your sharing uh, your story. If you uh, have the time and can call my office today or tomorrow, I would be willing to share this story. Uh, I would love to highlight it because Barbara Lee and my, myself and Cory Booker uh, have a bill uh, to legalize uh, marijuana uh, in this country to not make it a, uh, a Schedule One drug. 
Uh, as you point out, it would actually help with the opioid crisis. It would help economically. There are a lot of medical benefits. Uh, and we need uh, citizens like you to, to be able to share their stories. So I really uh, appreciate it. There is legislation in Congress on this, uh, and we need to just continue to get support for it. Michael in Portland, Oregon. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Yes, I was calling to find out what the congressman's uh, position was in support of cannabis legalization. Uh, the lady preceding me uh, took care of that issue, obviously. Um, moving forward, I'm wondering what it is it that the majority of the Democratic uh, committee representing all 50 states can do to uh, come online and share the same perspective of legalization and be outspoken within their candidacies in their uh, local primaries, et cetera. Um, in California recently, one Democratic person stated uh, in opposition to the uh, in favor of legalization from a RNC member that um, they didn't want to legalize. I mean, it seems like a disconnect within the DNC party. Um, your thoughts, please? Well, I think on the, there are three very good arguments for legalization. One is it's uh, uh, economically a smart thing to do. It's going to create huge industries and jobs, too. Uh, it actually can help uh, avert some of the opioid crisis. It's much better and safer to uh, use medical marijuana and use marijuana for uh, things that uh, people are using uh, worse drugs or more addictive drugs for. And finally, there's a racial disparity angle to it. I mean, the, uh, if you're bluntly young and white and you uh, try marijuana, you're probably not going to have your life ruined. If you're uh, a young uh, African-American or Latino-American, and particularly in the uh, inner cities or urban areas, and you do that, uh, you may have your life ruined in a criminal record. So there, uh, it's, a, it's a racial justice issue as well. And I, I think particularly with young voters, uh, it's a major issue, and it should be something that every Democrat uh, supports. I'd add a fourth one to that. That is that it breaks the back of organized crime. We saw this with the uh, when we ended alcohol prohibition in the 30s, and it put John Dillinger's contemporaries all out of business. That's a great yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think that's one of the major motivators for, for, you know, like what Portugal did. Pat in Seattle. Hey, Pat, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hi, Congressman Kana. This is really a comment about the uh, universal health care. Um, I was... Uh, I've been married 60 years. I'm not now. I'm divorced. No, not divorced. I'm, I'm widowed. But I tolerated 60 years of physical and, and verbal abuse, and I could not leave my, leave my husband because um, I needed the insurance. I had underlying uh, uh, medical problems, and his employment. Um, I could get the insurance from him. I could not leave him because I would be unable to get it without. Well, on the, on the open market. Well, I'm, I appreciate you sharing your story, and I can't uh, imagine how difficult that, that was. But this is why we need to make it very clear. You should have health care in this country uh, the day you are born or the day uh, that you become American. I mean, that is just a, uh, should be a basic right uh, of uh, living in a civilized nation uh, so that you don't have to worry about uh, it, it, conditions of how you get health care uh, in, in making uh, life choices. Deanna in Redding, California. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Oh, hello, Congressman Kana. Um, I just wanted to make a point that if we have Medicare for all in this country and only if 200 million people pay $100 a month, like people on uh, Medi Medicare and Medicaid do now or Medicare do now, how much money are you bringing in every month? And I think that would more than cover the health care coverage in this country, you know, and you can take out the um, all of the insurance and you can take out a lot of the, the medical over costs or overheads that doctor's offices and, and hospitals have to pay. And, yeah, it would put a few people out of jobs, but they could be retrained in jobs that would really help people instead of insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right, and that's you're explaining in very uh, simple and, and, and thoughtful terms that how you get that $32 trillion for Medicare for All versus the current health care, which is $49 trillion, and how you save $17 trillion uh, because you are uh, taking out a lot of the uh, costs, as you point out. Now, one of the things people say is, well, you're going to have to pay some tax or $100 a month or $200 a month, and what they omit is, yeah, but right now people are paying nearly $1,000 often a month or $600 a month to their private insurance companies, and that cost won't be there. So almost every American uh, who chooses this option would, 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 would save money. Yeah. 
It's remarkable. We have just uh, 15 seconds here, Congressman. Uh, what should we be looking at this coming week here? Well, I think we're going to continue the, the appropriations fights. I mean, the, uh, remarkably, the, the Republicans still are not funding uh, things for election safety or election integrity. Uh, they're continuing to gut uh, the EPA and, and different agencies, and so we're going to be uh, fighting hard for that. And then we're still really fighting for these kids to be united. Uh, it was just done in such callous uh, disregard uh, that you still have kids separated uh, from their parents, and uh, there hasn't been a significant effort, uh, enough effort, in my opinion, to reunite them. And so uh, many of us are going to continue to push for that this week. Thank you, Congressman. Thank, Thank you. you. Hey, do you brush with an electric toothbrush, or have you wanted to? If you're using one of the one of the older, bigger, bulkier, you know, and some of them you know, are so aggressive they can even damage your mouth, uh, tooth, electric toothbrushes, uh, or if you've never... Th- used an electric toothbrush, I want you to pay attention. There's a new electric toothbrush. Time Magazine called it the invention of the year, right? Uh, It's called Quip, Q-U-I-P. It's slim, it's lightweight, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush. It's got a a little AAA battery inside that powers it and powers it for months at a time uh, between changes. And it, it does a really great job. It aggressively cleans your teeth, but it does so in a way that's good for your gums and good for your teeth. It's a, the perfect two-minute clean. So check this thing out. And it's great for traveling. It comes with a little tube that you can drop it into travel because, like I said, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush, much, much smaller than your, than your big electric toothbrushes. And you can find out all about it at getquip.com slash Tom. That's G-E-T, getquip, Q-U-I-P, dot com slash T-H-O-M. Getquip.com slash Tom for more information. It's only 25 bucks, and they send you the refills, the, the brush heads that you're supposed to replace every three months. Every three months, they'll send those to you for only $5 free shipping. It's an amazing deal. Getquip.com slash Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us is a political analyst, historian, and journalist Thomas Frank, founder of The Baffler Magazine, author of numerous books, including What's the Matter with Kansas's latest book, Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. His website, tcfrank.com, and uh, you can tweet him at Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank, welcome back to the program. Mr. Tom Hartman. How are you? I'm, I am, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear your voice. Well, thank you. Back at you. Uh, rendezvous, this, this is, uh, you know, rendezvous with oblivion. This is serious stuff we're talking about here. Well, you say it's serious stuff, is that what you just said? Yeah. <laughs> but, but done with a sort of, with a certain amount of humor. Yeah, so it's a, you know, it's a play on Franklin Roosevelt's phrase when he, he said this generation is a rendezvous with destiny. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, Tom. I'm I'm very, um, uh, you know, unhappy with the state of life in the United States. And it's not just about Donald Trump. So the the book is a collection of essays going back about ten years, um, in which I document. It's it's mainly about the sort of um, uh, you know the, the intellectual guardians of the public interest and how they have failed. Uh, this is this is something that my eyes were open to during the financial crisis and that I started caring about and really paying attention to um, as in the years that that, that that followed. And they're just across the board failure, and you know yielding us the world that we live that we live in today. So Trump is kind of the culmination of the book, uh, not the not the beginning of the of the critique. The, the, the weird thing, Tom. Uh, is I go back over essays that I've written over the years, and you've read many of them. You've read many of them when they came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I basically forgot about those essays as soon as I wrote them, and as soon as they were published, I just forgot about them. And then I went back and was looking at them, and everything pointed to Trump. It, it hmm. was just the weirdest thing in the world. Wow. I, I would, uh, you know, it's, it has occurred to me, and in fact, actually, my my book that uh, uh, Hachette uh, poorly titled The Crash of 2016, um, you know, starts with the Powell Memo in 1971 as the turning point when, when the, the hard right reached out to the business community and kind of then they integrated themselves into each other. And, you know, then Powell got put on the Supreme Court and then you got the Buckley decision in 76. Powell was put on the Supreme Court in 72. 
and uh, or 70, yeah, 70, maybe 73, whatever. And, and boom, you know, that leads right to Citizens United. And then you got, you know, billionaire oligarch running Fox News Network, Rupert Murdoch standing up for billionaire oligarch Donald Trump, and, and all these guys who helped fund, you know, like, uh, you know, the Heritage Foundation and others saying, saying things like, you know, we don't want people to vote, you know, the, the famous quote from what's his name. So, you know, yeah. where, and, and it seems like the, the, the high water mark was Reagan's election when he could actually put this stuff into law and nobody has reversed it. We're still living in Reagan's world. That's, what do you think of that right. analysis? That's right. Well, you've got to have, you gotta have a, a second political party if you want to do that. How so? <laughs> I mean, you have to have a, a party that opposes. Oh, well, this is your book, Listen Liberal. If you want to reverse it. I'm sorry. I'm so cynical. I'm so cynical. I'm like the Hobbesians. No, I, I get it. But but this is your book, Listen Liberal. You know, which you and I talked about on yeah, this program. Where it. it's, it's, it's and it's and it's so frustrating. Everything you just said is exactly true. And uh, the the you know and that I remember when this stuff was happening in the um, in the in the 1980s, and and it was shocking to me at the time. And I could I could see very plainly at the time in the 1980s where this was going if you allowed it to continue, and that is, it's going straight to the straight back to the 19th century. Yeah. And that's, that is really where we are. And can I tell you something? And by the way, so, so uh, Ronnie with Oblivion documents all of these sort of different facets of the change that you're describing that you would never really think of. So there's um, several essays about uh, the higher learning in the United States, like the corporatization of the university, which is a, um, a really sinister story once you, start, uh, once you start looking into what's happened to higher learning in this country. Um, you know, and there's there's essays about architecture, about the McMansion. I do the, mm-hmm. one about the history. I'm very fond of this one. An essay about the history of the McMansion. I go to various presidential libraries, et cetera, et cetera. But the question that really that I have been thinking about a lot lately, and that I don't have an answer for, Tom, but that your uh, monologue a minute ago got me thinking about again, is this: How does a society recover from an age of corruption? Well, that was you the know, essence. You... That was the essence of, of my book, Crash. And it's that, you know, basically we've done this three times, and every time we did it, it followed a major economic disaster, which was then followed by a war. And the, the Great Crash of 1770 led to the, to the American Revolution of 1776. The Great Crash of 1856 led to the Civil War of 1861. The Great Crash of 1929 led to, led to you know, the, 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 the New, New Deal. deal. Sure. Right. And, and I think that it's going to take another Great Crash. What do you, what do you think? We just, we had it. We had it. In no, the we didn't, that's though. Just, that's the thing. I mean, that's the, if, it, if that crash had happened two years into Bush's presidency, instead of just six months before the end of it, he yeah. would have, he would have, he, it would have, you know, attached itself to him. And as it was, you know, Obama got us out of it and the Democrats got us out of it. But I don't think Americans realized how bad it was. You know, they, you know, they yes, weren't. They did. You're exactly right. They didn't real. I mean, people were, were furious. And if you ask me, are still furious. So from, for, for people today, that is the foundational moment to a certain degree. That is the nightmare knowledge that lurks in the back of everyone's mind when they're, you know, because it, it, it did expose the, um, the professional class as being, you know, profoundly corrupt. The Wall Street guys, the uh, home, the real estate appraisers, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the people that rate bonds. Everybody was, everybody was on the take. Everybody was in on it. And, um, and then they all got bailed out. And that's the, that's the sort of nightmare knowledge that's behind everything and, that, that has and, come and since. And apropos, By the way, but, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. It's your show. Right. Well, yeah, but, but it's about your book. You know, in Listen Liberal, you made the point that the Republican Party uh, represents the 1%, and the Democratic Party, uh, as reinvented by the Clintons and the whole DLC thing back in the 90s, uh, represents the top 10%. Nobody's representing the bottom 90%. And, and I think that's what you were referring to when you said, you know, if you're going to push back on Reaganism, you need a new political party. But I see yeah. that emerging inside the Democratic Party from, from Alexandria, Otacio-Cortez to Bernie Sanders to, I mean, all, to even, you know, so-called corporate Democrats now singing the tune. I mean, you've got now this, this new caucus, Medicare for All caucus that just emerged. Yeah, I know. It's great, isn't it? I mean, good stuff so is that, happening, those, those it are, seems to me. Those are really positive developments that, you're, that you just described. Those are all, like, really great things. Uh, What's sad is that, and I keep coming back to this point because I'm, I'm fairly obsessed with it, but, I, you, know, you know, I think historically, that's just how my, my brain works, we thought we had that in 08. Mm-hmm. We thought that's what we were choosing with Barack Obama. And we thought, or at least I thought, and I thought he was the right man for the job, for that for the occasion. I thought that's I thought what we had in 92. Yeah. Go back oh, and no. read, you know, my book Threshold, well, I quote, I mean, yeah, uh, uh, Clinton's entire uh, New Covenant speech. I mean, he, yep. he campaigned as FDR in 92. 
I know, I know. But he didn't have the financial crisis. I thought that was uh, that was the turning point, and I thought that Obama would have to rise to the occasion. And uh, uh, and instead, we got what we got, you know. And uh, you know, half measures in all things. And uh, Republican Party bounced right back. You know, the most the most incredible thing. You and I were talking about it at the time. The Tea Party movement. Look at what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you better get out there, Democrats. And because they are so allergic to. Um, populist outcry. They are so, you know, they, they, they want nothing to do with that kind of discontent. Um, they're very uncomfortable around it. Uh, it doesn't come naturally to them anymore. Um, and, you know, the, and, and the rest is history, as they say. I mean, they left that up to the Tea Party movement and to Donald Trump to, to sort of fake yeah, uh, I, I, it really yeah. seems to me though that all of this is changing. We're talking with Thomas Frank is changing. We're talking with Thomas Frank his new book Rendezvous with Oblivion reports from a sinking society. Th- uh, Thomas, we have just a minute until we're going to hit a hard break here, and we got to bail on this. Uh, your thoughts on where we're going? There's um, hopeful signs in um, the, the, the you know the, the the rising left wing of the Democratic Party. Very hopeful. Uh, on the other hand. I don't think Trump is going to be as big a pushover as people think. Uh, I think that there is something going on in this country, and I think uh, mainstream Democrats don't get it. Um, and I think it's it's a really, really ugly turn. Um, you know, when Trump and Bannon talk about making the Republican Party into a workers' party, uh, they're not kidding. They're really that really is the um, that really is the plan. And it's something that you know it's basically it it grows out of everything that you and I have been saying in our conversations over the years. It's entirely predictable that they would try to do this. Now, the Democrats, you know, this is the moment. They have to, they have to stop these guys. Yeah. Well, let's see, let's see them do it. Yeah. Well, let's, you know, well, we'll, I'll keep agitating if you will. <laughs> Thomas Frank, uh, his new book, Rendezvous with Oblivion, reports from a sinking society. Thomas, thanks for, for dropping by today. Oh, no problem, Tom. I love it. Thanks. Always great talking with you. Yeah, the website, tcfrank.com. You can tweet him at Thomas Frank. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Back with more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment. And welcome back. Pat in Seattle listening on KBCS. Hey, Pat, what's on your mind today? Pat? Hi, Tom. Hey, Pat. What's up? Um, I have been wondering for a long time why the Democrats don't organize around the mission of climate change. You can do the jobs issue, the equality issue, the cultural issues between men and women. Um, People need a mission, and we can make industries sustainable and have the right industries uh, helping out the planet. Mm. What do you think? I, I, I don't disagree with you, Pat. I think, though, that broadly we need to figure out exactly how to message this. Uh, up until now, the messaging has been um, basically scientific. If we continue down this road, if we continue with climate change as it's going, it's going to lead to massive cultural, economic, and human disasters. And, and disasters for basically all life on, on the planet. I mean, we're looking at something that could be that bad. And so, you know, we've got to do something about it. I think that that's actually starting to sink in. You're, you're now getting a few Republicans who are talking about climate change uh, in defiance of the Koch brothers. Uh, you know, and people are starting to realize that it's, you know, people like ExxonMobil and Koch Industries, you know, that make their money with fossil fuels that, of course, are going to be funding climate-denying science and things. But I think the big thing that's happening right now that that is is going to help us is that you're getting you know cities uh my brother was visiting from michigan over the weekend and uh i grew up in you know he and i and my other two brothers we grew up in michigan i don't throughout my childhood you know from for all the years that i lived in michigan from 1951 to 1978 i have no recollection of a day of any day that went over 100 degrees i mean it just you know in, in lansing michigan it just it probably did once or twice but it was so rare you know, you always you think three-digit, you know, temperatures, that's, that's Phoenix, Arizona. You know, that's southern Texas. And now it's happening all over the country. And it's really hitting farmers, and it's really freaking out, you know, people. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have a big impact on food prices here soon. And I think that it, it, it's reaching the point where it's unescapable. 
And so maybe we can just continue the economic or the, uh, the, the climate disaster uh, discussion, because frankly, that's the purest discussion around this. Uh, you're right, though, you know, empowering local people by, by, putting, by solarizing their homes. You know, Hawaii is running those ads now, the Hawaiian Power Company. We're going to have, you know, all solar power in Hawaii or all renewable power in Hawaii. Um, these are things that could be done. I think these are all good arguments that we can and should be making, Pat. Right. And the Democrats have not educated the public about it. Uh, as well, they, much as they could have. They actually, they they try really hard, Pat. It's just that the media, the corporate media in America, will not put. And we've had several Democratic politicians on this program complaining about this out loud on the air. Will not put Democrats on the air unless they're willing to talk about Donald Trump. Yeah, uh, I know you that. Know, or Russia. But you know. I think the you know the recognition is worldwide, yeah. and um, it can have so many positive benefits that the Democrats are just not talking about. They get lost in the details. Yeah. And the science, you're right, isn't going isn't gonna to persuade people. It's well, I think, I think it may start to. And I think the, the fact that it's getting so damn hot out there is really starting to cause people to go, huh, really? So we'll see where it goes. Pat, thanks for the call. We just you know, need to keep up, the, keep up the messaging. We'll be right back. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech, in fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable, it is high-tech, and yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary, and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's gonna help your posture. And you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is gonna work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Jason's Professor Jason Stanley. He is the Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University the author of four books, including his latest, which is due out on uh, 9-11. It's titled How Fascism, which is an, what an appropriate date for this book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. And uh, oh, it'd help if I click the right button here. Professor, Professor Stanley, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for being with us. Your book is extraordinary. I uh, read the first chapter, The Mythic Past, for one of our book reports uh, to share with our listeners. Just, you know, uh, in fact, it was just the first couple of pages of it. Um, it's really, uh, you've, you've nailed it here. Let's, can we just go through this? Yes. So how does fascism start? How, first of all, how does it work? You, you call it the politics of us and them. Um, can you give us a, a working definition for, for fascism here? Well, my book does that with 10, I, I talk about 10 different properties of fascist politics. But basically, fascism is ultranationalist, patriarchal, authoritarian, uh, against public goods of any kind, uh, and forges an us-them distinction using ultranationalism and fear of the, of, of the other, uh, based on their lack of uh, participation in the national community, however you define that. How is that different from the Tea Party phenomena that was funded by a small group of cranky right-wing billionaires? 
Well, the Tea Party phenomenon has strong affiliations with fascism. I would say that uh, the difference would be insofar as libertarians are very careful not to make group generalizations and just say we're about, if they just say we are about individual liberty and don't broaden that to say, for instance, that, you know, whites, whites are under threat from non-whites, uh, then they avoid fascism because fascism makes the leap from libertarian, from a certain kind of libertarianism, like um, life is a struggle, it's all about hard work and who wins, it's all about winners and losers. Meritocracies. Yes, to it makes a struggle, it, may, it makes a move from that to saying that certain groups are winners and other groups are losers. And, you know, I would say that a consistent Tea Party uh, person who wants to avoid being, uh, avoid being a classical fascist should avoid, uh, should avoid making generalizations based, based on group identities. They should avoid patriarchy. They should avoid uh, demanding... Uh, demanding a uh, a return to to tradition to certain national traditions that marginalize other national traditions. So the Tea Party itself was was a sort of inconsistent tent. Uh, and I think you know, insofar as it's possible, I'd like to bring in uh, some of those uh, members, um, both both committed religious uh, conservatives um, who would who, who would be against some of the um, hate directed against immigrant groups, um, as well as libertarians who are committed to uh, to uh, rejecting uh, group generalizations. Like, yeah. so so let, let's just go through these. You you start out with the mythic past. Tell me about this. So all fascist movements talk about a mythic past. They talk about uh, they in, in every fascist movement. For instance, India today, the Hinduvatu movement says back you know back. In India's glorious past, it was a pure Hindu nationalism, and we must return the country to that. It's always patriarchal. Uh, you're making the country great again. And the thing you have with like Mussolini and Hitler and, uh, and Alfred Rosenberg, some of the National Socialist um, ide- uh, ideologists, is they were very explicit that the past was mythic, that the past that they were glorifying never existed. And the idea is to create a sense of nostalgia for a past country that never was, to make the country great again. So, uh, so and, 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 and there are certain sort of general features of the mythic past. It's always patriarchal. It's always pure. It's always like a certain group, uh, the traditions of a certain group reign supreme. You know, you could say Christmas without hurting anyone's feelings because Christmas was the dominant tradition, as it were. In, in Hungary, Viktor Orban uh, talks about you know, returning Hungary to making Hungary great again. Uh, so, so this is this is a dominant theme uh, of of fascism. The idea is to connect, to give people a sense of yearning for a country that never was. Wow! And, and, and then you offer to 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 reprovide that. What about propaganda and anti-intellectualism? So propaganda. So here's a core example. Every fascist campaign is an anti-corruption campaign, even though the fascist, ca- fascist candidates or fascist parties are often manifestly much more corrupt than their opposition. Because democracy is represented as corruption. Because in a democracy, what do you do? In a democracy, you've got to make lots of concessions. And so you've got to make concessions to different groups. Fascist leaders represent that as corruption. So a fascist, a fascist candidate would use phrases like drain the swamp. Mussolini did. Yeah. Okay. That's an point old, that's point an made. I mean, Madeleine uh, Albright uh, makes that. Uh, both Mussolini and the Nazi Party ran anti-corruption campaigns, promising to drain the swamp. Um, and of course, our current president, who whose business practices were manifestly quite, let's say, dubious, uh, managed to run an anti-corruption campaign. Yeah. Uh, so one has. To, so it's. So by propaganda, I mean when, as in George Orwell, you know, war is peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you using, speak, yeah. You know, anti-corruption is used in the service of corruption. Tell me about victimhood. So victimhood is uh, what I what I mean in the chapter in victimhood is in fascist politics always appeals to the traditionally dominant group and tells them there's the, they are the real victims, even though they're in, tar- in charge. Even though they're in charge, 
and it and it paints and of course many of the people in the dominant group are victims are victims of say capitalism for example or like you know of of certain brutal like white white men are seeing their wages go down exactly but they're made to feel victims not of that but they're made to feel, feel as cultural victims so their attention is directed away against what's actually victimizing them hmm. and towards a kind of cultural victimhood so, so it's a message it would be like a message to white men that says that your wages are not going down because that's what capitalism does. Your wages are going down because women are coming to the workforce and people of color are coming to the workforce and all those Mexicans flooded across the border. Uh, and and uh, that and also, you know, your cultural traditions are being disrespected. Hitler in Chapter 2 of, of Mein Kampf talks about, my, you know, my time in Vienna, talks about the theater and the decadent theater and how it wasn't representing true German art. So, how, you know, the theater, the media is attacked for degenerating the tradition, the cultural traditions of the dominant group. Yeah. Nick, Nixon and Spiro Agnew uh, ran on a, a platform of law and order. And I see law and order as one of the, one of the characteristics of the emergence of, in your book of, of, of a fascist takeover. Was, was Nixon moving in that direction, or was just, he just using a catchphrase that worked well for him? And, and how do you see that happening in contemporary America? Nixon has a lot of elements of a fascist leader. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm careful in the book to say you have these ten properties, and it's a sliding scale. Okay. And so Nixon certainly didn't have all. But Nixon's certain, this is a very powerful way to come to power, is exploiting these mechanisms of fear. And there is no question that Nixon used demagoguery about black Americans. We know from Elizabeth Hinton's work, a recent 2016 book on mass incarceration, uh, I mean, Nixon said to Haldeman, the, um, you know, the problem is the blacks, and the goal is to construct a system that recognizes that while concealing that uh, right. that, it, that it's doing that. Right, and so, with the drug laws. Yeah, the yeah. drug laws. Yeah. And uh, he said, we're going to go after marijuana to get the hippies and heroin to get the blacks. Right. Uh, so, so, so law and order, what law and order means there is that the outgroup is always, by their nature, a violation of law and order. Mm. So, yeah. so walking while black becomes a crime. Or, walking while black becomes know. a crime, or tellingly, Jeff Sessions said about Donald Trump, you can tell from... Uh, Mr. Trump's, uh, Mr. Trump's reaction to the Central Park Five case that he's going to be a law and order president. Now, Mr. Trump, in his reaction to the Central Park Park Five case, was to say that perfectly innocent teenagers should still be punished, executed. So, in fact, what's yeah. yeah? So, what sense of law and order is meant there? It's certainly not democratic law and order. Yeah. Um, your last chapter is Arbeit macht frei, which is the uh, slogan that was over the over one of the concentration camps. I think it's uh, Dachau. Auschwitz is over oh, several different Auschwitz, okay. And, and it literally means work makes you free. Um, I, at the same time, Matt Blevins, the new uh, Republican governor of Kentucky, is now trying to associate work rules, work requirements with Medicaid. Uh, in other words, basic health care for poor people, women, children in the state of Kentucky. Um, you know, theoretically to knock, you know, as many as 100,000 people off the rolls to save the state money. But does this tie into a fascist agenda as well? Absolutely. It's a key element. Hitler decries welfare in Mein Kampf as destroying the economic independence of the nation. The, the, but the, the point there is, at the core of fascism is social Darwinism. It, you know, life is a struggle. It should be hard. We, we should be... So, in fascist leaders try to say, in struggle, you find meaning. And so you want to make life as hard as possible. But especially... The idea is you want to make life hard for groups that have been supposedly leeching off the state. Under the National Socialists, this was Jews. Jews were using the state um, to, to get interest from hardworking Germans via banking. And so Jews were supposed to supposedly lazy. And the idea was they needed to be made to work. Uh, in that chapter, I talk about how across the world, the outgroup is always represented as lazy. Remarkable, remarkable stuff. Professor Jason Stanley, a new book, it'll be out on 9-11. You can pre-order it now. How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, Professor Stanley, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Great talking with you. We'll be back.
Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and uh, Ernest in Corvallis, New Mexico. Hey, Ernest, what's on your mind today? Uh, yeah, I have a friend that moved here from Arizona. And when he lived, when he lived in Arizona, he had, his father had a, had a, a cattle ranch up in the mountains. And um, he, was a, he was a Republican. So what he did was he would have barbecues to raise money for, for, for Republicans. And my friend was, was uh, about 17 or 18 at that time. And uh, <clears throat> he, became, he says he became a Democrat because he got tired listening to those people like Barry Goldwater and his cohorts uh, describe how they were going to steal this and steal that when they got into power. Hmm. And so he became a Democrat. Remarkable. One, one more thing, one more thing. Mm -hmm. I also read a book about New Mexico. It's called the Santa Fe Ring. Mm -hmm. And these were people that in the 1840s, 1848, 49, after New Mexico became, after New Mexico became part of the United States, right. uh, there was this group of uh, politicians and lawyers and stuff like that, and they, uh, and they would uh, scheme on how they were going to steal the land from, from the people, uh, the Hispanic people in New Mexico. Hmm. And guess what? They were all Republicans. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, Ryan Zinke just got busted for this. The, the Washington Post has an article, in fact, it was breaking news about three hours ago, about how there was an accidental dump of a whole bunch of emails uh, from Ryan Zinke's office, you know, the Secretary of the Interior, about how they were going to completely ignore how Americans loved their national parks, how Americans use, what percentage of Americans use the national parks, how the national parks generate revenue, how the, you know, all the benefits and values of national parks. They were going to delete all that, and they did, by the way, delete all that information from the public comments that they were going to put out as they were cutting up our, our national monuments and our public parks and, and turning yeah. them over to their, to their oil you know, and billionaire buddies. So this is nothing new, Ernest, but uh, it's, it's a great oh, no, point. No, 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 yeah. it's not. I just thought, I, I thought it would, might be interesting. The yeah. anecdotes might, might seem interesting to somebody. It, it, yeah. they, they, you, you're right, and they were. Thank you. And it was a great stepping off point to talk about what Ryan Zinke is up to. Curtis in Phoenix, Arizona, listening on Sirius XM. Hey, Curtis, what's up? Yeah, Tom, listen, I, I really respect your opinion. And I was wondering, I was just looking at Russia's, Russia's economy over the last 10 years, and from what I'm looking at, it seems like the sanctions got their economy down to about the size of metropolitan New York. And I don't understand, with such a small economy, how can they compare with the kind of money we're spending on the military and, and our large economy as far as being a world power? That's the first question. And, and, and well, let me ask, ask, answer the first question first, okay? Um, number one, they have about the same number of nuclear weapons we do, and that's the parity that, that ultimately matters for the Earth. The entire Russian defense budget is about the same size as the increase in our defense budget that Donald Trump asked for in the last budget. Um, so, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, the, militarily they're not our equal. But in terms of nuclear war, they certainly are, and that, that gets them a lot. Back to you. Okay, the other thing is I have, I have a little small rinky-dink website that's only targeting the United States citizens, and I block out all countries outside of the United States. Why we can't block out uh, the ru.ru .ru, uh, domains and, 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 and cut this crap out if it's such a problem? You're talking about the uh, trolls on Facebook and that kind of thing? Yeah, well, any traffic that's coming from yeah. Russia, why we can't just block it out? I can well, block you know, out I, traffic. yeah, I, you're you're right. You can you can do you know domain specific deletes. Although probably then they would just VPN into a different country and come from there. But it's but I you know I think that this is an issue. These are the kind of things where you want and Curtis, thank you for the call. Where you want to have a president who is actually in dialogue with the president of another country. You want Donald Trump to be talking to Vladimir Putin to work out stuff like this. Unfortunately, you know, Trump just can't do it right. I mean, this is the big problem I see, is that, is that Donald Trump doesn't know, he's, he's incompetent. And so he's like, oh, I'll go over there, we'll talk about this in private, and we'll get all this straight. No, you have your people work this, the details out, you come up with a punch list of things that you want to accomplish, you, you identify your goals before you go into it. I guarantee you that's what, that's what Putin did, and, and it's apparently not at all what Trump did, tragically. Jonathan in Daytona Beach. Jonathan, we, got, we have one minute left. What's up? How you doing, sir? I was calling because maybe you can help me with it, but I'm trying to figure out what has the Democratic Party done for black Americans? How about passing the Voting Rights Act as, as a yeah, starting see, point? See, see, I feel like we're still stuck in 1964, and that, that's, that's my biggest issue. I feel like the Democratic Party wants black Americans 
to stay stuck in 1964 when everyone no. else comes over to this country and reap the benefits of the blood sweat. Have you looked at the at the at the racial profile of the Republican caucus, Jonathan? I mean, I, I'm assuming he, he that you're that, that you're not a Republican troll trying to trying to just no, troll no, me here. No, I'm not. But I'm not, but the, you I'm know the Republicans have got like what one black guy in all of Congress. You know, Tim. I'm not. I'm not a Republican. I'm a Black American. No, I get that. I get that. But you know, what have the Democrats done for me? Come on, it's it's the party of inclusion. It's the party that is saying we're here for all Americans, not just the white supremacists. That seems to me like a hell of a good starting point. Thanks so much for being with us today. What a what an amazing day, an amazing news day. Uh, we will continue our conversation tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. We can't just sit on our hands. We've got to get out there. We've got to show up in tidal wave proportions this November. The voter suppression is full tilt boogie. They've already knocked over 10 million people off the voting rolls in the last 10 years. Get out there, get active, get registered, get your friends, tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.